Michael Guyad runs the Lead Lag Report, an investing group on Seeking Alpha, has been writing for us for a very long time with outstanding analysis, which has won him a lot of followers on Seeking Alpha and on Twitter. He talks to us today about the markets, the U.S. markets, the international markets, gold, index construction, the Fed, inflation, recession, commodities, why it's important to pay attention to commodities and precious metals, even if that's not your main focus, why he likes a certain sector more than any others, utilities. And we get into NVIDIA and the overvalued tech sector and how he thinks we should be thinking about our portfolio construction as investors. We get into whether or not a correction's coming, whether we're still in a bear market. Any articles discussed today, you can find links to them on our show notes. And all episodes have transcripts available on Seeking Alpha. And for those wanting to follow breaking news and general news coverage of the markets, come listen with us at Wall Street Breakfast. We have morning episodes released before 7 a.m. Eastern and afternoon episodes released around 12 noon Eastern. You've got Wall Street Breakfast and Wall Street Lunch for all your market news needs. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Michael Guyad, who runs the investing group, the Lead Lag Report, and manages a portfolio outside of Seeking Alpha, on Seeking Alpha shares salient analysis with us. Welcome to Investing Experts. It's great to have you. Salient is a good word. I appreciate that as uh, as part of my description there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I think befitting. I think befitting. Um, befitting is a good word. Too. <laughs> we are we are starting strong. I feel like you're very articulate. Speaking of good words, I feel like you're very articulate in how you share your thoughts about the market. So I'm excited to have you on. I let let's get started. How are you? I, I like to get started with just setting where we are. We're July 18th, end of the day, Eastern time. How are you looking at the markets? How are you thinking about things these days? If you follow me on Twitter at Lead Lag Report, you know that my uh, my articulation has a different tone uh, there. <laughs> yes. That's the world we live in, a different tone for a different platform, right? Yeah, I saw that I saw that tweet from somebody. It's like my Twitter me is different from my Instagram me, which right. is different from my LinkedIn me. Okay, so um, just framework-wise, after the first week of January, I made the argument that uh, we'll probably see a melt-up and then potentially a crash all in the same year. Now, I know that sounds dramatic, but let's look at the historical precedent. So usually in pre-election years, uh, you end up having a very strong market. You end up having a melt-up. Now, all that has pretty much played out so far. You've had a fairly sizable run in uh, the S&P 500. We know what has happened to the NASDAQ and tech with the AI media that's run wild. So it's been, by all metrics, you know, one of the strongest six months to a year uh, uh, in history, let alone in pre-election years. But I, I've been warning that in the context of that melt-up, there is a credit event that's out there. Now, in January, when I started making that argument, I put the time frame around the latter part of the year under this idea that you have a large number of uh, loans that are going to be refinanced into higher rates next year. And most crises are refinancing crises, right? It's on the rollover of debt where typically there tends to be a problem and higher volatility. If that's going to happen and start in earnest next year, 
if it's going to be a stress point for the bond market, the stock market and bond market won't respond off of it next year. They'll respond off of it this year because the markets are supposed to be forward-looking mechanisms. So I always put the time frame around a credit event later in the year. I don't know exactly when because my bet in, in the way I think about this is that the stock market and bond market will start to worry about what's going to come in 2024. Now, that seems bizarre and seems fantastical because the trend has been very strong. I'd argue that the fact that the trend has been very strong is exactly why you need to have a credit event to break it. It's very hard to break momentum and FOMO like what we're seeing this year in the absence of some kind of exogenous shock. And if history is any guide, it seems plausible that uh, just like everybody fell for the recency bias of last year with equities going down, people are probably falling for recency bias now this year, the other way around. And so what does that mean for investors if they're looking out for, I understand that, you know, you can't predict the timing and such, but what should they be preparing themselves for if you have that in mind? So a large part of what I called my hell last year as somebody who runs uh, rules-based funds, a mutual fund, ATAX, Roro and Jojo, my ETFs, which by the way are totally separate from the lead lag report investing group. Yeah. On a side note, I, I always find it amazing. People can't differentiate between me as a analyst, researcher, macro thinker, and me as an entrepreneur launching these funds, which would run the exact same way if I died tomorrow, right? It's not mm-hmm. based on my discretionary thinking. So that, that's an important distinction. But um, in practice, what that means is that I suspect that the thing which was my hell last year, which was the failure of treasuries to counter equity volatility, that treasuries end up uh, doing what they historically do, which is serve as a buffer and counter in a stock market correction or you know credit events, using that terminology. So, from a practical perspective, I know everybody wants to buy and uh, and 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 feels tempted to just chase, uh, especially the Nvidia, Nvidia's of the world and and high flying names in the stock market. But maybe the best thing to do is actually start to position a little bit more into long duration treasuries, not because you're trying to play off of yield in long duration treasuries, but because historically, when you have a credit event, when you have you know some kind of a shock decline, there's a flight to safety. Money goes into the pristine asset, which owns all of us through taxation, which is US government debt, at least for a moment in time. Right? I'm not talking from an investment perspective, I'm talking about from a yeah, allocation perspective um, in, the, in the here and now. So I think that if you believe that we are, uh, you know, things are, are strong, but there's still a risk out there, then I'd argue that the best way to hedge that is long duration treasuries, unlike last year, uh, because now you have a hard, higher starting yield to actually protect you against uh, falling markets. And how does that play into, or does it play into how you're thinking about how the Fed is looking at the markets, playing with the markets, however you want to define that terminology there. It's funny, at the start of the year, I I put a tweet saying the Fed actually wants markets to go up. It wants to prove uh, to the stock market that it threaded the needle for the soft landing or even no landing scenario, right? So your term playing with the markets, I think is, is interesting because that is, you can argue what they do with their rhetoric. Now, unpopular opinion, but this is fact, the Fed doesn't control the long end of the curve. Long duration treasuries, yes, there is a correlation with Fed policy, but it's not one for one. 
So the Fed can keep on raising rates as they have on the short end, but long duration treasuries can still do well and be in their own world. If you notice, for example, the TLT 20-year plus treasury ETF, it's not made new lows while the Fed keeps on hiking rates. So uh, there's one thing to to hear a narrative. Another thing is to, is to look at the reality. The reality is that the Fed is a follower of the bond market. The Fed, I've used that line many times before. The Fed does not own the bond market. The bond market owns the Fed. So treasuries are going to be the thing that ultimately dictate what the Fed is going to do later down the line with a lag. Now, if you have a credit event, default risk increases, credit spreads widen. That probably marks the, the end of the bear market, which, by the way, I still think we're in. I know that sounds bizarre. We can touch on that maybe in a bit here. But uh, that would be consistent with what you see in uh, – in highly volatile risk-off period, you would see uh, treasuries move first and then the, the Fed respond after. Okay. Let's get into the bear market a little bit. I'm interested to hear what you what you think about that. And also, if you want to work this in here, I know that you've alluded to it a little bit in what you've been talking about and written it about your uh, written about in your recent articles. Th- this index construction discussion that's afoot, and you know the Nasdaq being affected by tech stocks, and um, yeah. I don't want to get. I, I think I'm. I might be throwing too much at you at once, but yeah, no, no, no. It's it's important. So first of all, we should like I, I put a piece out, and I've been trying to stress this as much as I can because it's it's not just sort of a function of playing with the words here, but you know, like the media typically says, you know, you're in a new bull market when the market's up twenty percent off of a low. Okay, that to me has always been strange because it's not you're entering a new bull market. You technically have been in a bull market. Right, if you're going to think of it that way, because you've already gone up 20, it's a, it's in the process of going up 20 percent when you're in a bull market. But even that, to me, is not really a proper way to think about the classification of what's a bull and a bear. To me, a bull market is only known with hindsight after you've taken out the prior inflation-adjusted high, inflation-adjusted high for the stock market. So, if the S&P 500 were to break new highs this year, which by the way is possible, I said that back in January in an interview, I said it's possible that the S&P breaks nominal highs but necessarily won't necessarily get back to the real after inflation justice high um if you think of it from that perspective we're still in a bear market because you're still in a drawdown right you haven't taken out the prior high okay that doesn't that's just you know that doesn't have anything to do with portfolio construction that's more just about framework and getting overly excited around you know how much to allocate right to equities now if uh, one, one of the dynamics that was unusual about last year was there's this saying that markets uh, follow a staircase up and then elevator down. And that typically bear markets end with capitulation, the kind of moment where everybody just sells and you have a very nasty decline. And that typically is what marks the end of you know that cycle. VIX spikes to very high levels. You didn't have any of that last year. So if last year, if October was the end of the bear market last year, it would be historically abnormal given the sequence and given the wave of volatility itself played out at that bottom. Now, if we're still in a bear market, a credit event would confirm the end of the bear market because what would a credit event mean? It would mean the VIX spikes. It would mean a very significant sharp decline, maybe slightly breaking the lows of October last year. And again, treasuries countering this time around, unlike what we saw in 2022. So, you know, it's, it's more than just semantics. I always go back to, you have to define things properly. Is it a bull market? 
maybe, but you don't know until you take out the prior high. Until then, way the evidence to me still looks like it's a bear market. You can have a melt up in a bear market. Bear markets have plenty of very vicious, aggressive moves. I hear the argument from people that say you've never had a bear market rally last this many number of months. I don't disagree. You also never had the fastest rate hike cycle in history like we saw last year. So my point is it's more about perspective. We don't know where we are in the cycle just yet because a lot of things arguably are off. All I know is that when I see the sentiment so one-sided, when I see put-call ratios as low as they are, when I see everybody screaming melt-up, when none of these people were around back in October of last year when I tweeted that out, the end of the world's bull case, when you have so many people being this adamant, markets do what they do, which is they tend to throw everybody off. So uh, I think this is just going to be one of those environments where people do have to be careful with narratives and have to be careful with how much they over allocate to equities, because, you know, if this is going to be somewhat fleeting, uh, it can be quite pa painful to chase a high right before a tail event happens. Yeah, it seems to me to your point about also that, you know, you need to it, you need to have perspective in order to define things. That seems true of the stock markets and economy. I mean, broader life stuff as well. But I think pointing to both, you know, terms like recession, uh, when people are, you know, screaming up and down that we're in one, I, a lot of times it seems to me that you don't know that you're in one until you've been in one. And it takes some hindsight but, and, and, to recognize right. that. Right. And I'll take this further because, like, you know, now the narrative is, well, everyone was wrong about the recession. So we have to, everyone has to now admit that they were wrong about the recession. Okay. Well, isn't that also a prediction that we're not in a recession if you're pointing fun at other people that have said we're in a recession or we're having a recession? Mm -hmm. So if, if the narrative, by the crown was wrong about the recession a year ago, which again, you only know with hindsight, then couldn't the narrative be wrong now that we're that the recession has been actually pushed out? Like this is my point. It's 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 the things that people often will argue uh, against inherently means they're making a prediction which itself probably ends up being wrong too. Right? So that the again I go back to perspective. Again, all that means from a portfolio construction perspective is um I don't know if it makes sense to get overly uh, excited and think about uh, going into, again, NVIDIA as my kind of favorite stock to to point to. I don't think it makes sense to consider NVIDIA a store of value, right, or something that you do put your savings in. A lot of people make a lot of money, don't get me wrong, but, uh, you know, if 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 the bear market isn't over and if we're in a manic phase, uh, you just said this line many times too, you know, uh, you can make a lot of money in manias. The question is, can you keep it? Right. That, I think, is where where I think a lot of people are going to get tripped up on if I'm right about what comes next. Right. Victor Durganov was on the show, and, and we were talking about the froth in the AI sector or the, the AI part of the tech sector. And, you know, he was pointing to NVIDIA, which, he you know, is a high-quality company, I think, by all measures, except that it's certainly, you know, the valuation is certainly in, in the frothy territory at this point. So, you know, speaking of perspective, I think, uh, yeah, Perspective is key. Um, yeah, and, and, and by the way, I, I rant on NVIDIA quite a bit on Twitter, and it's becoming kind of comedic. Um, I basically said that NVIDIA is in, uh, I'm not going to use the word, but is in trouble before the earnings you know, beat. And I was saying that more as an example of the point, of, which is now being reversed, admittedly, that uh, you had all this momentum in just a select number of stocks. There wasn't real broad participation, which, by the way, I think that's even still questionable as far as the breadth argument, which we can touch on, too. But the... Uh, I think NVIDIA is a symptom of a bigger problem, which is that people think that a stock 
and a company are one of the same. Mm-hmm. They're not, mm-hmm. right? A stock, a, a stock is one thing, and price movement in Nvidia is not based on AI. It's based on people. Mm-hmm. It's based on narratives. It's based on belief, right? And we've seen that with the boom and bust cycles with cryptocurrencies and how narratives keep on changing and then get reversed. So you know, it could be the greatest company in the world. Cisco is a great company. You know, everyone uses that example of Cisco as the analogy for Nvidia, which could very well be the case. Cisco is a great company, and you know, it, it made. How much money post you know uh, the 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 internet bubble of the late '90s, uh, but the stock price went nowhere really since you know 2000, right? So to think that history can't repeat and to think that a stock and a company are one of the same, I think is is foolish. Yeah, um, get into the breath. I'm happy as long as we're talking about Nvidia. I'm happy for you to touch on that. Yeah, I mean, look. So first of all, it's, it's funny because I I would argue I would I. <laughs> I would have argued actually um, maybe up to recently that if I've been wrong on anything, I've been wrong on the melt up you know, that I said in January because up until recently, small caps weren't participating. So there was a stat uh, sometime in April or May, I forget exactly when that I came across that showed that, you know, at this point, at that point back then, April, May in the pre-election year, small caps had never been negative at that point in a pre-election year. So the, the pre-election script was only playing out for large caps, not to small caps. So now you're seeing, you know, breadth is 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 widening. In other words, you're seeing money now going to small caps and you know more 52 week highs. The problem is, I think people are misinterpreting what strong breadth should mean. Strong breadth goes beyond just number of stocks going higher. It's are the smaller, more speculative stocks advancing at a faster pace than the conservative larger cap stocks? It's outperformance is really what breadth is. So as much as you have more stocks participating on the upside, the rate of change of that participation is not beating that of the broader large cap averages. So I look at that. So like if I look at the small cap to large cap ratio as a proxy for that, small caps are basically just keeping in line with large caps. So they're participating, but they're not participating adjusted for risk and adjusted for the small size. So it, it could be, I don't know, it could be one of those things where Maybe they start to outperform. It is possible given how badly they've underperformed. But right now, the breadth argument, I think, is not really, uh, is I think a lot more nuanced than the headlines would have you believe. Mm-hmm. Go figure. Um, let Can we touch on the index construction for a second and, and your thoughts there and where you think the markets should go, are going, how investors should be kind of preparing for it? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, it's um, it's interesting, right? Like, at what point is is a diversified index no longer diversified, mm-hmm. right? So, I put out that uh, tweet looking at the Nasdaq 100 Qs, QQQ, right? And ten years ago, in 2013, the top uh, I think it was the top five names made up 49 percent, or top ten made up 49 percent of the QQQ ETF. Now it's for, went from 49% to 60%. So it is true that there is more concentration risk in a lot of these big cap headline averages than people realize. Now, why does that matter? Because if you're going to follow the market, but the market is increasingly being overweighted and that weighting keeps on going higher in a select number of stocks, 
well, now it's not a proxy for the market. Now it's not an index. Now it's just a couple of stocks that have idiosyncratic risk that everyone's chasing. And it's not a true reflection of what's happening beneath the surface. That matters because if, you know, if you're going to be a true asset allocator and investor, you want to be diversified. You don't want company specific risk and you don't want to be in an ETF that looks like it's diversified, but in reality is just being driven by a select number of names. So that's again, going back to perspective, you can make a lot of money that way. Obviously people have, right. But you're taking additional risks by not realizing that now you've got more company specific risk in what is supposed to be a diversified basket and index that's tracking it than ever before. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you think that there are major changes uh, made to this, to this notion? You know, it's interesting. The, um, we're in, increasingly in an, uh, in a world of oligopolies, right? Where a select number of you know companies run entire sectors and industries. You're increasingly in a world where um, monopolies are not really broken up, so there's more concentration of power, and you're increasingly in a world where there's less competition. So to an extent you can make an argument that this is the way things are going to continue because the longer term dynamics do not favor um, an even playing field because the big keep getting bigger and keep taking shares you know, of an industry, industry away from other companies. And by the way, higher rates don't necessarily help with that, right? It's like if you want to increase competition to lower concentration risk by some of these mega companies, you need to have more entrance. Well, now with the cost of capital as high as it is, you know, it's hard to, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? You can't really, I'd argue that the real way to fight inflation is with competition, but you can't really have competition if the cost of capital is so high. Mm. So it, you end up having more bankruptcies. The very large stay, you know, uh, large, they have cash. So you have less players. So it ends up, uh, the, the point is you end up having this kind of constant uh, tailwind, right? That favors concentration among the like number of stocks. Again, you can make a lot of money that way, but my only point is that it just puts you towards far more risk uh, than you might otherwise think looking at, you know, the Dow Jones industrial average of old or S&P of old or Nasdaq of old. Mm -hmm. um, you're somebody who covers, I mean, really a wealth of, of different parts of the market. One of the things that I wanted to touch on, because not everybody covers, you know, the international side of things. Um, how do you talk about the internet? I mean, I'll let you kind of choose which path if you want to focus on a certain area, if you want to s focus on certain ETFs, um, however you want to talk about a sort of allocation to an international um, section of the market, let's say. Yeah, so I think it's important to keep in mind that when you think about international, you have to make two distinctions, right? So one is developed international emerging. But then on top of that is value versus growth. Okay, so emerging markets have been dead money for over a decade. I mean, it's, it's, and, and I've been very wrong, you know, hoping, I say hoping purposely because my mutual fund tries to play emerging market momentum, it just doesn't want to stick, hoping that emerging markets would lead. Right. And the reality is it's been a game purely of US and not only US, but large cap momentum. So, yeah, you know, the last decade plus has not, obviously not been good for anything that's international. Now, if you believe in cycles, at some point you have to assume, I think, that there's going to be momentum outside of the U.S. For momentum outside of the U.S. to take place in emerging markets, 
you have to kill off the tech trade. You have to break the technology momentum because a lot of the emerging market uh, indices and ETFs have a value tilt. In other words, the sector composition for a lot of emerging markets are heavily towards heavily weighted towards financials, materials, energy, less so tech, which is what's driving the NASDAQ and, and the S&P 500 in the US. So if you have a shift away from growth into value, I suspect you will have a shift away from US into international, in particular emerging markets. Now on the developed side, whole different animal um, because demographics are horrible when it comes to Europe. They're less flexible, obviously, in terms of and more and less dynamic in terms of their economies. I'm in general not a fan of trying to diversify in Europe for a lot of structural reasons. Um, and that value growth story is not as clear as it is with emerging markets as sort of the beneficiary of, of value uh, tilt. But I very much do think that we're going to be entering a cycle that should favor emerging markets more than anything else. But it's going to be violent and volatile. Part of that thesis relates to commodities, which haven't really done all that much this year. But if you believe in the argument that these are structurally underinvested parts of the investable landscape, Emerging markets tend to correlate nicely with commodity momentum strength. So a bet on commodities is also a bet on emerging markets, which is also a bet on value. And all that basically can be summed up into, you know, a bet on 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 anything outside of the US where you could have big gains is ultimately a bet against technology as the leader in the US. And how are you thinking? Well, are there specific ETFs that you would advise? Uh, investors to look at pertaining to the international markets or ETFs that you feel like investors should avoid? So I guess it depends on your objective. If you're going to be purely trading and momentum based, you know, the composition is not going to matter as much because for the most part, you know, in these kind of aggressive momentum moves, all the emerging markets would, you know, co-move in a similar way. The if you're going to be a longer-term investor, though, I think it, there is a lot of merit to the idea of avoiding um, ETFs and funds that uh, have government state-owned enterprises. So try to go for those funds that tr don't have the government state-owned uh, enterprises as a big portion of their portfolio holdings, because if it's government-owned by these emerging uh, countries, they don't care about profits. They don't care about shareholders. Right. So you, you see, there's there's not a, a good alignment of interest there when your biggest shareholder is, you know, a politician. So I think um, if somebody's going to look at it from the longer term perspective, consider that there's also interesting funds out there uh, that will weight emerging markets based on um, openness and uh, freedom. You know, so China obviously would be you know among the bottom weighting in products like that. There's a lot of interesting studies that show that uh, countries which have more uh, uh, freedom for their citizens tend to do better among the emerging market landscape. I think that's an interesting area to focus on. But it's still a broader cycle question, right? I mean, as long as technology keeps on fascinating people, momentum is not going to really take place in a big way outside of that independent of you know whatever you're trying to play in. Are there tech stocks that you like? Yes, I mean it's not it's not a function of like me being anti-tech, right? It's just a function of where the outperformance is. No, yeah, that's what I'm curious about. Like, are there tech stocks that are worthy of you wanting in your portfolio that are also at a price that you would want to pick them up at? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't necessarily do it for my own funds, obviously, because they're rotational the ETF structure. But you know, look, it, it's not hard to see which tech companies have you know massive cash and have you know massive dominance and have low valuations, right? Nvidia, by the way, is not one of those, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm saying like that's you know. It, it's almost like, you know, if you're going to invest in tech, invest in the blue chip, you know, the names that have, you know, real fundamentals, right? Mm-hmm. Not hype. Um, that There's nothing wrong with that by any means, right? And also, you know, a lot of these, you know, mega tech companies also, you know, that might have some yield. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense to consider. It's funny because I, I think people have this impression that I'm some kind of a Luddite pointing out technology momentum. It's not the case. I'm just simply arguing that when everybody's, uh, crowded in any sector, just like by the way you saw with the energy sector last year, which this year has done you know terribly on a relative basis. Um, you know, when everybody's in one part of the investment landscape, the payout is always is usually bigger betting on something else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you would be a fan of the mega cap stocks. You feel like for a retail investor, that's that's a good bet. I, I think again, if it's you use the word bet which is, I think, the right word to use because the bet there is that the idiosyncratic risk doesn't manifest in a very bad way with the concentration of large-cap stocks that are driving the large-cap averages. Mm-hmm. I think if you're going to be... I think if you're going to be a real longer-term investor, it, it probably makes sense to be in small caps around these levels. right? Now, the only caveat there is, going back to the credit event, long-term small caps probably do for a period of outperformance because they've done nothing since 2014. They've underperformed large caps since 2014, so there's a you can argue a cycle mean reversion play that's coming. But there are, it's true, a lot of small cap companies that are in quotes zombie companies, a lot of small cap companies that may not survive rolling over their debt into higher rates. So you have to be mindful of that because a lot of the small cap companies may not exist, you know, in a couple of years, um, you know, which would bring with it recession, unemployment, all that stuff. So it's a question of time frame, right? If you're gonna if, if you believe that we're entering some kind of a uh, highly volatile period, I'd argue actually probably you want to be more in mid caps because there's less of the zombie uh, zombie dynamic and there's uh, more diversification as opposed to large caps, which are you know, again concentrated around a select number of stocks. It's just a question of how much risk you want to take for the unknown. And are you talking about broadly speaking mid caps or specifically in the yeah, broadly mid cap okay. 400 or okay. yeah, exactly right, more broadly, right. Um, something we don't talk a lot about on this podcast, but I know that you cover and, and speaking, you, you spoke a, a bit briefly on, on commodities is, is gold. Uh, what are your thoughts there specifically on any ETFs and then just broadly speaking, the commodity? Gold is unique in that it doesn't really correlate to very much except flight to safety sequences. So it doesn't have, it makes it, I'd argue, the ultimate diversifier, right? Because it doesn't really correlate to too many things. Now, if you think about it from like an institutional perspective, what would cause, you know, big money to position into gold? It would be a feeling that you're in a prolonged bear market, that you're in a lost decade for equities, right? Because if you're in a lost decade for equities, or at least if institutional investors believe that, they want less beta. They want less correlation. So they and there aren't that many things which are which are truly non-correlated. I mean, the reality is that most things are variations of beta. They're variations of equities in terms of risk. So uh, gold, I think, makes a lot of sense if I'm right that we're still in a bear market. 
right? Because it because if it will be on the realization that we're still in a bear market, which should be a correction, not taking out the prior highs and maybe even slightly lower lows, that that causes some at the at the margin, some residual money position into gold. So I think it makes sense. Now the question, of course, is you know how much, right? So I always make that point. It's not about what you own; it's about how much you own of it. So you know, waiting is always a tricky thing. Um, I'm a fan of the gold ETFs. You know, I, I get the idea of physical versus, you know, an exchange traded fund. But, you know, the reality is a lot of people, you know, just want the exposure to the price movement as opposed to, you know, actually holding it. So, you know, there's there's merit to that. I do think there's also an important distinction between gold and gold mining stocks. Uh, people people seem to be under the impression that as gold goes, so too do the miners. It's just not true. Miners are much more dependent upon the price of oil as a driver of their earnings than the price of gold. Um, and there's all kinds of studies I can point to that show that. So I think if you're going to be bullish on gold, you're basically being bullish on the time frame of a prolonged bear market for equities. And uh, if you're going to be bullish on gold, that means you're also bearish on, on uh, correlation. Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts on other precious metals? You can argue silver would be a part of that. Although at some point gold will diverge, you know, it's not something I, I overly track too much. I think it's good to pay attention to commodities broadly and precious metals broadly, but gold is unique against the other precious metals because of that historical flight to safety perception, right? That causes market, it's moving to, to differ from everything else when you have that high vol. How would you articulate why it's important to follow commodities and precious metals, even if that's not your main focus? It's ultimately about cost push inflation, right? So there's a very strong link, for example, between you know oil prices and inflation expectations. So as oil rises, inflation expectations rise. As other commodities rise, the idea is that that gets passed on to you know uh, to end products. So it ends up be kind of a an early warning sign of inflationary pressure, and that matters even for bond investors because if commodities are rising and that puts future inflation in play. Then, if you're a bondholder, you might want to demand more yield on the possibility that inflation is increasing because of what commodity prices are doing. So, I think it's always important to look at all parts of the investment landscape. I know a lot of people tend to focus, you know, on one or two parts, you know, asset classes. You know, if you're going to follow kind of a more intermarket approach, which is you know my school of thought, you know, you want to be aware of the interplay of of commodities to to stocks, to bonds, to inflation, to currencies, and then how they all affect each other because it gives you a better sense of, you know, is the price you're paying today what you should, what, what, uh, does the price you're paying today make sense relative to what could be coming in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate that. What Are there specific sectors that you like more than others at this point? Uh, the, the most boring sector of all, <clears throat> which is utilities. Uh-huh. So I just put this this tweet out uh, today, but so utilities are the most unique sector of the stock market in the sense that they don't suffer from seasonality. Sell may go away. Dynamics not there. Utilities are the most bond like sector of the stock market and utilities have done terribly on a relative basis. If you look at the relationship of utilities against the S&P 500, you're pretty much at the November 2021 levels, meaning utilities have gone round trip in terms of their outperformance last year. November 2021 is when most people would argue the large cap bear market started. So I think, you know, if I'm right that we're in this kind of mania phase and that um, there's a credit event out there, 
and you're going to be long only equities, the sector to be in is the most defensive sector of all, which has the highest yields and most boring characteristics, with, which is basically utility companies. So, yeah, I, I think a, a, a rotation out of tech into defensiveness is going to be coming at some point. Utilities are the least weighted sector of the of most large cap averages. So at the margin, big players can't really do too much to allocate there. But if you're nimble and a discretionary trader, yeah, that could actually be your best equity play. Mm-hmm. Um, specific stocks that you like? No, I try to prefer, I, 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 as much as I can, I try to avoid doing individual stocks. And, and listen, I mean, I write about individual stocks for Seeking Alpha, not, you know, um, not so much on the investing group for the lead lag report, but I do think it's important for you to realize that, uh, you know, the vast majority of a stock's movement is not because of the stocks, it's because of the sector. Mm-hmm. So I tend to look at things more from a, you know, top down perspective because the evidence shows that, you know, it's the analogy that everything, these the stocks had to move like a school of fish. You, you might be able to identify who's going to be at the, at the front of the school of fish, but better to bet on the average. So the lead lag report, what are the kinds of things that you're, I mean, without getting obviously into the nitty gritty of it, what are kind of the broad things that you're covering beyond what we've already talked about? I always say that path matters more than prediction, which is a, I think people don't appreciate that <clears throat> that much because a lot of people talk about endpoints, right? Here's where Mark's going to be a year end or what's going to happen. But, you know, the dance in between the endpoints is. It's about the journey, old. not the destination. Yeah, no, it's true. It's about the, it's, it's, it's really, ultimately it's about the sequence of returns. So, you know, I've got the risk signals that are based on these different research papers that I'm known for. Uh, that won these awards that tell you about volatility, dynamics changing. So that's, you know, every start of the week, high yield ideas, macro observations. You know, it's um, my objective is to try to get people to think differently. Now, somebody listening to this is going to say, well, you know, your funds haven't done all that well, especially last year. So why should I listen to you? Well, uh, maybe that's actually why you should be listening to me because cycles exist because there's no gurus, only cycles, right? And in my world, I my approach does not do well in cycles which are dominated by pure risk on, because I get whipsawed playing defense, risk off. And uh, I don't do well in cycles that are just dominated by large caps, because again, the only way you beat large caps is either tilting small or tilting international. So unless you believe that that cycle is going to persist, which it could, I don't disagree, um, you know, if, if and if that's the case, by the way, you might as well just buy the S and P and and call it a day. But if you believe the cycle is going to change, then you know all the reasons, which is why my own strategies have not fared that well, gets reversed because the cycle comes the way of the strategies, and that means an environment where large caps are not the only game in town, where risk on is not the only game in town. Mean aversion is still a thing, and to that extent, my hope is that with the research, people think differently and at least try to keep an open mind for when the cycle changes, how to take advantage of that inflection point. What do you think uh, most formed your investing style strategy thesis? What best formed that or or what most formed that or what was the series of things that formed it? I mean, there's a lot of family history there um, in terms of my father being involved in the business. And, you know, but, but for me, like a lot of my... Uh, a lot of my my trauma, for lack of a better way of saying, it comes from 2008, 
and the way I look at the world. Uh, aside from the fact that that was when my father passed, the family business passed, there was also the great financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And I say that because I think when, when you have a confluence of events which changes the course of your life based on something which is an extreme, you tend to think of when is the next extreme going to happen? Right, because that was the you know that was what defined your trajectory in life. So from that perspective, yeah, you know, it's like I have a natural bias, right? My bias is not to be bullish or bearish. I'm not a permable. People accuse me of being a permable in October of last year when I said melt up. They're now accusing me of being a perma bear because I'm warning about a credit event. Um, my bias is to see the flight to safety. My bias is to want to see a tail event where the journey, the sequence of returns, favors you know, defensive assets for a moment in time so that I can ultimately buy low again, right? I mean, that's really kind of at the core of my approach. Um, so not, and Siri agrees with me, apparently. <laughs> so so um, that's why I say, like, Apple's a good spot to consider. <laughs> going back to the but the, the, the point is, like, I think, you know, it, it's like if, if all you know in your investing journey is, you know, a, a smoothable market, your bias is going to want to see a smoothable market. In my case, my bias is I've seen tail ends. I've lived them. They've changed my life. So, I don't mind seeing those because I think I can take advantage of them now. Certainly I did with my mutual fund, which again is rules-based in 2020. You know, in 2020, tax was up 72%. Now it gave all that back, but it was up 72% because I had a tail event in 2020. I had that that moment for risk off to really work. So my bias is that. And I, I hope that those that are listening and that are reading the work that I put out can appreciate that I try to think things differently, think about things differently. And I'm just naturally a cynical person and skeptical of narratives, which may not make sense when the trend is up, but makes a hell of a lot of sense with hindsight when things correct themselves. It's nicely put. Um, Michael, I really appreciate you coming on today. I I think uh, salient is a good word. I think articulate is a good word. I think thoughtful is a good word in terms of the analysis that you're bringing. Uh, any final words that you would want to share with investors in terms of thinking about the markets, looking at the markets, thinking about investing, Any anything that you would uh, like to leave them with? Yeah, man, go back to this line I, I, I say often, which is that opportunity always exists <clears throat> when the crowd thinks it knows an unknowable future. Hmm. Right. So like the problem that somebody asked me on Twitter, it's like somebody uh, was referencing Chamath and saying, you know, Chamath thinks we're in this massive bull market, you know, what would you say to that? And my response was the problem that I have and that Chamath has is that neither of us can predict the future. Which is why I always frame things in terms of conditions, right? I don't know the mile marker, I might crash my car, but I know I need to slow down when it's raining, right? So I would just caution people to to not get caught up in FOMO. FOMO works and the crowd is right on average, but they're wrong at the extreme. If you can identify when the extreme is, or at least a good amount of where the extreme might be ending early enough, you'll be much more profitable, um, as painful as it is to not be a part of that that FOMO. Um, And recognize that being contrarian doesn't mean that you're just saying the opposite of what the crowd thinks. Being contrarian means you're betting where there are fewer other players betting, which means the expected payout is higher, which is, I think, another nuance in terms of how to think about going against the crowd. I like nuance. Uh, you're a successful person on Twitter. H- have you moved to threads out of curiosity? Yeah, I'm trying. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, for whatever it's worth, I think, I, I hope Elon Musk gets it right, but like the, I think the QA on that app is terrible. 
I mean, mm-hmm. there's bugs everywhere. There's bots everywhere. I, I you know, I, I, it's like, listen, he's not an operator when it comes to the app world, mm-hmm. right? He can be the most brilliant guy in the world, but it's a whole different animal, right? It's like Zuckerberg trying to get into EVs. You say that's crazy, right? But Zuckerberg knows what he's doing. He's built social media apps. He copied them. That's fine, right? But he still knows how to build them. So, and the network effect is real. So I, I, Threads to me is, is like a Twitter backup at this point. It, I think Zuckerberg has a real chance at, at dethroning Musk, but listen, I'm running businesses just like Seeking Alpha is, right? It's, you want to have exposure to as many different places as possible because you have different audiences. So why not, just like you diversify your portfolio, why not diversify your social media cred? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, Michael, appreciate you coming on. I hope this is the first conversation and not the last and I uh, hope to talk to you soon. I appreciate it. Thank you. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.